Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janus Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janus Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. Front and center this hour, what this head-spinning week means to your money, whether the stunning comeback means stocks are about to take a big fourth-quarter jump. We debate that with our investment committee today. We're also going to be joined a little bit later by one-time Evergrande bondholder Mark Lazary of Avenue Capital. We'll find out how he thinks that whole story is about to unfold. With me for the hour today, Jenny Harrington, Jason Snipe, Steve Weiss, and John Najarian. He is the co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. Let's go to the wall, take a look at stocks. We're still positive for the week. 44.32 is the level we need to stay above. We are there on the S&P 500. Dow's flat, NASDAQ's uh, down a touch today, and the Russell 2000 is pretty much flat. Steve Weiss, what jumps out to me today is that you're a big buyer on this dip that we got this week, and I'm assuming these moves were made over the last couple of days. You bought more Dick Sporting Goods, you bought more Penn, you bought more Volkswagen, XLF, Cleveland Cliffs, Freeport McMoran, Facebook. Talk to me. So, yeah, so it was actually not over the last couple of days earlier in the week. Um, look, I'd gotten to about 35% cash and have been whittling out of some positions. For example, Lyondell got out of that and some others. And I just thought it was a good time with the market selling with that kind of force. And by the way, I don't view a market down 5% as being oversold after the massive run we've had. So I don't know where that comes from. Nonetheless, I thought there was an opportunity. And some of those stocks that I bought were down way more than 5%. I mean, they were absolutely crushed down 20% or so. So if you take a look at Cleveland Cliffs and you take a look at Freeport, I mean, from the highs down quite a bit, particularly Freeport, yet... Copper prices are pretty much stable, down a little bit actually up today, and I think they'll remain stable. I'm less, I'm less uh, enamored of Cleveland Cliffs, frankly, because steel prices are just so elevated. And with iron ore continuing to get crushed, uh, that's more of a short-term thing. So I'm actually looking for the exit if it recovers somewhat. Volkswagen got down to about $30. To me, that, that's an obscene level, particularly compared to the other auto companies. Dicks, I just added to this morning. That was down on the on the Nike news. Yet Dicks is doing quite well, extraordinarily cheap, and their guidance was very good. So yeah, so I've added to a bunch, put some cash back to work. I don't believe we're out of the woods yet in terms of the market because we've now seen two name brand companies, and by that I mean FedEx and Nike, come out and talk about supply chain issues, which, according to the companies I'm talking to, are worsening, not getting better. And we're also seeing margins under pressure due to labor. So to me, that's going to be more of the message during the quarter, which will take some of the multiple expansion we've seen out of the out of the market. So I will probably go back to high cash levels. So look at this as just adding to positions that I've had that I'm comfortable with. And I'll probably dial them back to just the core levels. All right. So Jason Stipe, I mean, what what a, a difference 
a handful of days make from Monday, which is a distant memory um, right now. Yes, you have yields that are moving higher. On the issue of whether there's going to be a Q4 rally, um, you know, look, I, I, I find it hard to believe that Weiss is adding to all these positions, yet he thinks that it's about to start pouring uh, outside. Um, you know, his points are well taken about what we've heard from Dick Sporting, I mean, uh, from Nike and, and FedEx. Jeremy Siegel, the noted professor and for the most part bull in the market, says, I think the road looks clear ahead for a month or two because the Fed will continue with its program. We could have a market up 10 percent before another 10 percent drop. I see problems in early 2022 with the market contending with the Fed. But he implies that between now and then you could have a nice move. Do you agree? Yeah, so I haven't been as busy as Weiss, but what I will say, which was super interesting this week, and obviously we were all talking about the tape, you know, the Evergrande story and Mark S&P was down 1.7 at the end of the day, uh, which was quickly bought. You know, obviously we saw the Fed commentary from Powell that was slightly uh, more hawkish. And I think the market just understands that accommodative policy will continue. It's really hard to fight the Fed in this market. There really isn't any other alternative. So I could see in the short run for sure markets continue to trend higher. Uh, let's see what this job prints look like in a couple of weeks and, um, you know, what, what the Fed ultimately decides to do. I think they'll announce in November and likely start the taper timeline in December. So I, I do see the markets continuing to move here in the short run, and I think earnings will be a catalyst as well. Right. I mean, Weiss, uh, just to come back to you to, to button the point up, I mean, mm-hmm. I just find it hard to believe that you think the market's going to have some big upset more than what we we had on Monday when you're adding to all these positions. I mean, why would you be doing that if you thought the market was going to have another rollover? Well, I I don't think that's going to happen in the next couple of weeks or so because we don't get into the heart of earnings season. We haven't even closed the quarter yet for another week or two. So I think that the momentum is still there in terms of an upward bias. But I am cautious. We had Meister come out today, and she talked about, hey, everything's in place to begin the tapering on uh, yeah, on, we know on, that November right? meeting. So what? And, right, but uh, but right, but but you're also getting indications that the pandemic is ending. We had Stefan Bonsell, the CEO of Moderna, give an interview to Swiss Paper saying that the pandemic will be over in a year. We could talk about that later. So no, that's I believe a negative. that you're getting well, that's the a optimism. No, I think that's an optimism for the Fed where they don't need emergency pandemic measures anymore. So my view is you're going to pull forward the rate hikes, and we're already seeing the market, the bond market, indicate that. Take a look at what's happened with the 10-year. It's had a major backup in rates, which is why I also added to the XLF meaningfully well, know, when, when Powell was talking. We're at 145. Right, exactly. But you got to get to 145 before you get to 160. Yeah, so I, the trend I hear is you, higher. But, so but, look, I don't expect... I don't expect the sky to fall out tomorrow or next week. And also, let me give one other important point. All right. I have beta in my portfolio, which means that my portfolio moves more than the market in both directions. So I will participate in the upside, but I've got to have some risk management to protect me on the downside, which, by the way, is why I also added to my China shorts. So I think I'm still pretty much in balance, but obviously favoring an upside move near term. Yeah. Jenny, you know, you were expecting a bigger whoosh lower, waiting to buy some stocks that you never got the opportunity to. And, and now here we are positive on the week. Did you and other investors miss their chance? Um, 
In the short term, yeah. In the long term, probably not. One of the things that I've been thinking about is is the idea that um, flat is the new down, right? So what's happening here? There's not really any huge negative news coming out. I think the Evergrande thing on Monday was more of an excuse to pull back because everybody wants a pullback. We all want the pullback so that all these stocks, like I've got two that I want to buy. And they're a little rich. They're not crazy rich. But I think if I can be patient, I can get them cheaper. If I you're can be patient, I can get are? them cheaper. Not That's gonna, not happening. You don't want to, no, don't want to reveal? Trust me. I'll tell you as soon as I buy them. But oh, okay. I can't tell you today. That's a deal. So, um, <laughs> That's yeah. a deal. I'll let you, okay. off. I'll let so, you off the um, hook. you got to do what you got to do. Thank you. And so as long as the Fed's pumping all this money in, and they still are, and even once this, they start to taper, I think it's hard for the market to really pull back dramatically. So I don't think we're going to have a big down movement. You know, I was hoping Monday might turn into a little bit more than it was, but I think flat is what we're going to get. Steve made a really good point before, which is that within the stocks that he was buying, some were down 10 and 20%. So there's dislocation under the surface. So you will get the opportunities. I think I'm still going to be able to buy both the names that I want to buy a lot cheaper. Um, but I think it's hard to have a major pullback. I just think we have these consolidation periods ahead where you know our version of correction or whatever we're going to call it is ultimately flat for a while. Um, and, we, and we consolidate the, vol- the valuations. So I know that's not as exciting an answer as you wanted. <laughs> I don't want any answer. I mean, you, you answer it what works for you <laughs> and your portfolio and your investors. I don't care how you answer the question. Um, John Nigerian. How do you how do you see it? You've got Barclays today says buying the dip still works. Obviously, it worked this week. Mm-hmm. Fundstrats Tom Lee says yep. risk on signals are emerging, um, and you can point to many. And I just go back as we think about the taper to what Steve Leesman told us a couple of days ago that even with the taper, you're still doing the equivalent of QE two plus. Yeah, and Steve was spot on about that, as was Tom Lee. Uh, by the way, Scott. Um, the, the jump, the 7% jump in interest rates from 136 last Friday to 145 today, um, that doesn't scare any of us yet. But as Steve said, it depends on what we're on our way to. Is it on our way quickly to 165? Uh, it's all about that velocity, those three V's that we talk about all the time, Scott, velocity, volume, and volatility. Um, volatility popped pretty dramatically Monday, of course. We had a 64% jump from Thursday to Monday. That's big. That's always been a signal for us, for Pete and I, and I think people that watch derivatives, that um, you've got that blood in the streets that you hope for. You don't know unless there was some, unless Evergrande actually did become that Lehman moment. It didn't seem likely that it would, so it seemed like that should be bought. So buying that and selling fat calls against it, that worked out yet again so that buy the dip is alive and well. And I think a lot of people still are looking, Scott, at um, smooth sailing between here and that November Fed meeting. And it all is going to depend, though, on whether or not we uh, don't get a big negative surprise on jobs um, or inflation between now and then. Those are the two big things. And that's, of course, those are the inputs the PCE and others that the Fed is going to be focused on into that November meeting. I'm glad that they want more data before they make that taper move. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be, Weiss, the most telegraphed taper of of all time. And that's going to mean something to how the market reacts. It's not going to be like the, the Fed can't surprise you at this point by announcing a taper in November, right? 
And what happens if the Delta news just continues to get better, the Delta variant news continues to get better between now and then? That's not going to cause the Fed to do anything more dramatic in the short run, is it? No, I, I don't believe it will. But what I'm looking to is that, look, we had the jolts number that went from 10 million to 11 million of that's open jobs. And I and that's a July number. Keep in mind, we haven't gotten August. We'll get August next. I expect that not show much improvement. But what I do expect is now that summer's over and keep in mind that we still had those extended unemployment benefits in July and in August. Those have rolled off in September. Now you're going to see with the weather turning, benefits coming off, et cetera, jobs coming back into the market. I mean, you're being offered, and but where are you going to see the stress right now, again, in earnings, is that while factory jobs used to be unbelievably coveted in this country, now you can go to Walmart, you can go to Target, you can go to FedEx, get a $1,000 signing bonus, get your education reimbursed, and get great health care. So you're going to see people coming back to work. It's almost too good a deal to pass up. So once you get that trending, then you're going to have both tests met. Plus, because supply chain's worsening, inflation's going to stay elevated. So the Fed's going to have no choice but to say, okay, we're on our way to full employment. And I don't know why the 11 million jobs, He's already the Powell, jolts number doesn't Powell, come into play. Powell the other day in his news conference mm-hmm said, I, I think the exact words were the conditions have been all but met all, all the way across the board. So we're, we're already there, which is why they're basically telling you, barring, you know, uh, something unbelievably ridiculous happening between and unforeseen happening between now and November. He told you the announcement's coming in November. They are making the announcement in November right. that they're going to start tapering, barring something that none of us see right now. We know that, don't we? Yep. Yes. No, it's happening. Meister confirmed it today that she said it's going to happen in November. My point is you're going to pull those dots further so that you can see the tightening cycle happen sooner rather than later. They're not going backwards. They're going to pull it forward. But the bond market's going to get in front of it. So that's my concern, that rates go up before the Fed. The Fed's behind the eight. So one thing we like to look at, Jason Snipe, is the Bank of America flow show every week because it gives you a sort of real-time view as to where some big money seems to be flowing. You've had, they say, which I found interesting, the first outflow from tech funds since June of 2021, it was $1.2 billion. We're not talking about an extraordinarily large in the market context kind of money, but nonetheless, the first outflow from tech since June of this year. Now, it's worth noting the Nasdaq lags the major averages this week. I'm wondering if we're at a turning point as you have month to date, some of the big cap technology stocks that have in a large part carried the market of late because of the rolling correction underneath the surface. If that trade is starting to reverse itself and that flow show note is evidence of it. Yeah. So it's a good point, Scott. And what I will say is I'm not entirely surprised by a little bit of outflow from tech. You know, it has really uh, share it almost been a defensive area of the market this year. So if, if there's been a bid in cyclicals, which I which we've recently seen, I could see why uh, folks are starting to reorienting their, their positions and look to other other places of the market. Right. So if the Delta, if the Delta variant has slowed, a policy continues. There are other places where 
I think folks are looking for a return. So I'm not entirely shocked by that move. And I think it's a good indicator of what's what's to bear going forward, you know, and, and where market sentiment is from an investment perspective. I'm curious, Jenny, if you think this is the start of a, of a new trend, a, a, a reversal of sorts where you have just a real allocation of money into more cyclical spaces because the environment uh, says that that's where you want to be. And look at what's happened this week. Norwegian Cruise Line up 8%. United Airlines up 8 Live Nation, which is a Josh stock, is up 6 Wells is up 35 The financials have done extraordinarily well this week. J.P. Morgan, 2.5%. Marriott's up 5%. Um, Jason Snipe, I mean, you're buying the XLF. You must believe that there's staying power in this trade after... Uh, Say it again. You're buying the KRE, excuse me. Yeah, yeah. And these little so voices me, in my ear, I had to figure out what was going on. Sorry. Yeah, so the <laughs> KRE was, uh, for us, a little below market weight. Uh, we sold, we trimmed it in June and just added uh, some additional capital to it. And part of it is exactly what we're talking about, just kind of cyclical-oriented aspects of the market. You know, financials have been relatively flat for the month up in the past week. But we, we like regionals. I think there's, you know, return to growth, return to loan demand, you know, it, as we see in the next few months. I think it's an opportunity. So, you know, it was down about three and a half percent in the last month, down a little over five percent in the last three months. So we, we took an opportunity to add some capital to it. I'm wondering how we think about small and mid caps, which, by the way, Jenny, are the best this week. And Jonathan, Jonathan Krinsky, the chartist we love to talk to who looks at the technical, says stay with it for the time being, at least. Do you agree? I do. I think that there's I think that there's a broader rotation, which is what you were touching on before, that is starting to set in. And I think this goes back to people are I think people are a little I don't want to use the word spook, but maybe or maybe a little apprehensive because we need to remember how strong the markets have been up 30 percent in 2019, up 18 percent last year, up almost 20 percent this year. And I think however you cut it, however bullish you are. I think that's just a little unnerving to people. And they think, oh, maybe what's worked in the past, maybe it's worked so well. Maybe I need to step back from that. Not step away, but step back. And so I think it's so interesting that, yes, yeah, small cap's working and it hasn't. Um, we see that the um, graphic that you showed before, money's moving into cash. I saw a money flow into bond funds, too. I'm like, who would buy bonds? You're not getting any growth you know, with yields this pr- at this price. You're not getting any income. So all you're getting is stability. And I think that people are looking for either that stability or to take a little bit off the table in terms of, in terms of the overweights that their portfolios have had or transitioning away from what's worked in the past and maybe into something new. Maybe people are starting to say, hey, these might be rich, right? We know the market's kind of weird. We know that the overall valuation on the market's 21 times, but we know that that's heavily bifurcated. There's a section, there's a sector of the market that's at 31 times. There's a sector that's at 13 times. Maybe we move away from that. And so I think the small cap example that you just gave is part of a broader, is part of a broader repositioning. And you could say it's moving into cyclicals. You could say it's moving into small caps. You know, I always say it's moving into ultimately the have-nots of the past few years. And that might just be people thinking that they're going to buy a margin of safety in their portfolio. Anecdotally, the conversations that I'm having with clients shows that there's a lot of apprehension and people are calling are calling us because they think they're feeling that and they know that we do something a little bit different with the dividend income and the lower valuations and the steady, stable, here you're just going to get this. And I think that's appealing after three years of ultimately go, go, go market returns. I'm not surprised. I think that's a trend that's here to stay for a while. I'm not surprised that there's mm-hmm. apprehension in the kind of day that we had uh, on Monday. 
and, and whether it's just, a, you know, when you start getting calls that are cautious and worried and apprehensive, if that's a counter signal of, mm-hmm. you know, a market that's not nearly as bad as it feels and oh, how quickly things can turn, which we witnessed this week. Dr. J, is it time to yes. move out of tech and into cyclical stocks? As the Bank of America flow show no. note suggests <laughs> that people are doing at least this week. Uh, yeah, this week, Scott. And um, to, to, to your point, though, about the uh, the fear that was out there Monday, um, fear, uncertainty and doubt or FUD are always out there um, and they can be exacerbated by something like this week. And it was Evergrande. Now, that was not a news story. But the story was coming to a head as to whether or not the CCP would back Evergrande and let those defaults happen, um, either A, with the bank loans or uh, yesterday with the uh, payments that were due on the bonds. And uh, basically, China did not let that happen. They didn't blink. They basically said, yeah, we're going to back this one, but we're not going to let that money flow out to the folks that uh, are the investors, we're going to make the money that we put up go towards finishing these projects because that's what the CCP was more worried about than basically backstopping the investors. Um, but once we got that, which was one of the possible outcomes, um, everything was okay. As soon as we got that, things were okay. They weren't great with Evergrande, of course, but you immediately saw jumps in the prices of. Uh, many of those property stocks in China, obviously many of the, uh, uh, the the negative that was around that FUD basically just drifted away, Scott. And then the Fed, by pushing it out till November, let it push further out into when we're going to actually see that tapering. And again, that's that's expected, but we didn't know for sure on Monday whether or not China would indeed let those bank loans go, and then let the bonds go yesterday. Now we know. Let me get one quick comment before we take a break on something I, I heard on our air today that I thought was pretty interesting. And it's, you know, can be argued it's the ultimate reopen stock. And uh, that is Disney, which Jim Cramer said he bought back um, after selling months ago. I think he said $171 was around uh, the area where he got in. In a week where, you know, Bob Chapek made some comments about some headwinds, maybe it's a couple weeks ago, made some comments about headwinds in the streaming service growth. You did have the stock sell off. Wall Street quickly came to its defense, um, as did Kramer. I, I think you make the argument. You know, Jim doesn't buy things lightly. He looked at an opportunity. His, I think, feel of an opinion of where Mr. Chapek is taking this company has changed, evolved, or at least morphed into the fact where he felt comfortable buying the stock. Doc, you own calls. Jason Snipe, you own it, as do you. Jenny, what do you think about this move from Jim Cramer? Says now's the time. It's okay to buy Disney again. So we've owned this for a year now, right? We bought it at the bottom of the market last summer. We paid around 124 And the thesis then was that they would probably ultimately earn $10 a share. That's taking a little bit longer to get to than we thought, but it is a long-term holding. And because a lot of our clients actually have taxable portfolios, we can't just go in and out of it because if you're taking the capital gains, it really cuts into the overall total return. So we bought it. We're holding it. We think when it gets to that $10 a share, maybe it'll be trading at 18 times, maybe 20 times. That'll still be a discount to the market. And Disney, of all companies, certainly deserves a premium valuation. So we believe in Bob Chapek. We believe in their strategy. We're not getting too cute with our timing, and we're just holding it for the long run. I think this is the kind of company that you can do that with. And meanwhile, they're pumping out cash flow, and they have amazing products. And theme park 
theme park attendance is returning. Um, you know, even if we get nervous here and there as right. different variants spike up. Okay. But it's in really good shape. All right. You, uh, mm -hmm. you don't want to miss our next interview uh, because China's embattled property giant Evergrande remaining silent so far on a big bond payment deadline that leaves investors in limbo. We're going to speak with one investor who had some exposure to Evergrande. Avenue Capital's Mark Lasry joins us next to tell us what he's hearing. There's going to be a default. What he thinks about contagion risks. You'll hear from him next. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is our CNBC News update at this hour. Within the last hour, Vice President Kamala Harris appeared on ABC's The View during her live interview from a separate studio in the building. That's because two of the four hosts tested positive for COVID just minutes before a planned on-set appearance. Both had been vaccinated. The White House says that Harris did not have any physical contact with the host before the show. President Biden says that unvaccinated Americans are causing a lot of damage and putting the U.S. economy at risk. He is urging older and high-risk Americans to get a booster if they are now eligible following yesterday's CDC approval. I'll be getting my booster shot. Um, I, 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 it's hard to acknowledge I'm over 65, but I'll be getting my booster shot. It's a bear, isn't it? I tell you, acknowledge anyway. But all kidding aside, I'll be getting my booster shot. I'm not sure exactly when I'm going to do it as soon as I can get it done. And at that appearance, President Biden also said that he, as president, takes responsibility for the situation at the Mexican border. And he promised that there will be consequences for the Border Patrol agents who were seen on horseback trying to intimidate Haitian migrants by waving leather reins at them. A local official, meantime, says that a couple hundred people remain in the Del Rio camp, down from nearly 15,000 last week. And separately tonight on the news, one state's innovative solution to the problem of where to put solar panels without doing more harm than good. 
You are now up to date. Scott, I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, appreciate it very much. Thank you, Rahel Solomon. Shares of Evergrande fell sharply again today after a key deadline passed with no word on whether the company had made an interest payment on its debt. Evergrande has a 30-day grace period to make that payment before officially going into default. For more, we're joined by Avenue Capital's Mark Lazary. He was one of Evergrande's bondholders. It's good to see you. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. You know, I thought of you with this story just simply because I think of distress. I think of big companies like that and somebody like you probably own debt. Um, and it turns out you did. We did. Yeah. No. So first, I want to apologize. I'm at a meeting with Senator Wyden and I'm at uh, Cowan's offices. So they put me in their studio. So I know there's the Cowan logo behind me, but uh, this is where I could do it. But happy to talk about Evergrande however you want. Well, I mean, you can... Uh, Senator Wyden, I mean, I don't know, maybe you have some insight on whether the Democrats are going to get anything done or this big infighting and everything else. We could talk about that later, however. I, I do want to know um, what your position is right now in, in Evergrande, if any, and you can give me a little bit of history there. Sure. Look, I think when we look at Evergrande, we, we've been looking at this for quite some time. Our view has been that the there's about $300 billion of debt. I think the... Um, the dollar denominated debt's about 19 billion. So our view has been that um, the government is, you know, an under she, they're trying to send a message, which is um, they're gonna focus really on sort of the, the people who've put deposits down, the people who've been building. So it's gonna be a focus on those debt holders before even gets the dollar denominated. So that was one of the reasons why we had gotten out. Um, and I think there's a message that's being sent right now with Evergrande. And so we've ended up shifting and we've bought a bunch of the other developers in China because their debt has also widened out. And I think today you can make somewhere close to sort of a 15% plus on a current. And we think they'll be fine. But I think Evergrande is going to have real issues. I don't think the interest payment's going to be made. Um, but, you know, people are looking at it saying, well, you know, they feel they've got assets there. Um, I think at the end of the day, uh, the bondholders are going to have some, a really hard time. I, I think that I mean, that's why you got out when, when you did. I mean, you saw the writing on the wall, right? I mean, the equity holders, the bondholders, um, certainly the international ones aren't going to be very happy people. No, they're not. We should have shorted the stock. We didn't. Um, that would have been a great short. But ultimately, at the end of the day, we got out of the bonds and bought other and we've been buying other debt. Um, and I think when things calm down, the debt we've got in a number of the other developers will do well. The issue of contagion. How does somebody like you view that question at a time where most have come on our air, if not all, to be quite honest, and suggested it's not China's Lehman moment? Um, and even if it is a moment, it's not going to spread in any meaningful way around the world and impact either our debt or equity markets. What do you think? I totally agree with that. I, I don't think I don't think this is an issue for the world or for the credit markets. I think this is an issue there. I think bondholders will lose money, um, but they've already lost quite a bit. I mean, I think the bonds are trading somewhere around 25, 30 cents. So they've already lost 75 percent of their value. Um, what is going to happen is within the Chinese banks, I think the government will make sure there's no issues there. Um, but th this isn't going to affect the financial system at all. You know, I was also going to ask you how it's impacting, if at all, your willingness to be an investor in China, not just this situation, but the overall 
crackdown, but your suggestion that you've moved to other property developers in China says you're still on the hunt for opportunity no matter where it is. Yeah, we, we are, but <clears throat> what's really happened <clears throat> sorry, what's really happened is that because of everything that's going on in China, spreads have widened out tremendously and there's a huge need for capital. Um, and so for us right now, we can do exceptionally well investing in China, investing in the region, investing in Asia, because people are nervous. And I love it when people are nervous. The more nervous they are, the better it is for us. So that's what we want. We want nervousness so we can end up investing. Let me just drill down on one, one point that you already mentioned on the, the idea sure. of whether there's going to be a bailout. How do you think the Chinese are going to, going to approach that? And there may not be contagion around the world, but how sick do you think the Chinese economy could get as a result of just the situation there, whether they step in, whether there's a, a whole restructuring or, or what have you? Oh, I think the government will step in ultimately. The, the purpose of all of this is to make housing cheaper. I think the government is very focused on making education more affordable, um, of controlling sort of in essence all their technology companies and also of making housing more affordable. And I, I think this is a plan of the Chinese government. It's happening. Um, they've been pretty upfront about it. That's why everything is getting repriced. This isn't any more sort of a laissez-faire type of attitude. Um, they wanna make sure that housing is affordable um, for the people. And the only way they're gonna do that is by making sure that they are tempering and they're increasing um, the amount of equity that's got to go into these deals so that housing prices will come down and you're not going to have as much leverage. It's going to be painful and it's going to happen over the course of next year. But I think for what the government is trying to do, I think they will ultimately succeed. You opened the door, so I'm going to walk through it and, and I hope you'll oblige me. But that, that's my job. Um, <laughs> no worries. Are you lobbying um, Senator Wyden? Don't raise my taxes. We talked about that before. And what do you make? I joke about that, of course. But what do you make about the the, the plan, the Democrats plan, um, whether they're going to get anything more through three and a half trillion seems unlikely. You know, right. and you've heard about the infighting that's going on within the Democratic Party itself. Yep. Um, how does that all unfold? Oh, look, I think the goal here is to talk to people, especially Senator Wyden, and explain. I think everybody is is fine. You can increase my taxes. I, I don't have a problem with that. Um, part of it is, look, if we're going to do this, where's the money going? What are we going to be able to do? And let's do it the right way. Um, so I think that's, it's really to have a discussion about it. Um, I think we all know our taxes are going up. That's not the issue. The issue is, in essence, how more are we going to have or how large of a deficit are we going to have? And how are we getting the economy back on? on board. So I think that's really what I'm trying to spend my time in talking to Senator Wyden about. And I think the other folks who are here are going to try to do the same thing. Do you, do you have an idea in your mind what, what seems to be a reasonable size for the, the package that the Democrats are going to try and push forward? Is it, you know, three and a half trillion, as I said, seems highly unlikely. One and I a half. It's what, what's your I, number? Look, for me, I think it's going to be somewhere between, you know, one and a half and two and a half. Um, but I haven't seen where all the dollars are going. Um, so but I think ultimately, just from a deficit standpoint, um, that's a lot of money to be spending when the economy is doing OK. 
and things have opened up again. So I don't think we need as much dollars into the economy today. All right. I, I know you're, you were busy and you're gracious to step out of your meeting and spend time with us. I, I really appreciate it, Mark. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Take care. All right. You as well. That's Mark Lazary joining us today. The other big story coming out of China, the central bank's crackdown on cryptos, calling all crypto related activities illegal, which leads me to you, Doc. You're our resident crypto player, um, more so than I think most other people are. And, you know, I thought Jim Cramer made a great point today and a somewhat cynical one in suggesting that no matter what the negative news flow is, crypto bulls seem to have blinders on and suggest that everything's bullish. And he couldn't see how news like this could be anything but bearish and overwhelmingly so. So someone like you, who is an ultimate crypto bull, how do you respond to that? Mm -hmm. Well, Jim is right. There is no way that you can look at this in the short term, Scott, and say that this is bullish. Of course, it's bearish, which is why then we immediately slam down to 40,000. On the other hand, China's been doing this uh, since 2013. They have been pushing back against crypto in a big way. Obviously, we talked about the miners and basically shutting down mining operations and then banks not being able to do business with crypto exchanges and so forth. But as Michael Saylor said, and I retweeted him when he said it, nothing has created more wealth in the past decade than the technologies that they're banning in China. That's a fact. Then you take Jordan Freed, a friend of mine who was over there with Hedera, and this guy owns NFT.com and a whole bunch of other um, crypto-related sites. And he was saying China is basically handing the United States and every other country a gift on a silver platter. Because if China is not involved here with the rest of the world embracing this, then they're going to be left behind, Scott. So it's not just a question of, you know, will they participate Uh, It's a question of they won't be involved in the technologies. Maybe they'll try to do a digital remimbi, which no one will trust, of course, because these uh, Bitcoin in particular, Scott, gathers its value by its scarcity. If you can just print more of something, that's why people jumped over to crypto uh, and Bitcoin in particular, rather than embracing things like the U.S. dollar. So short term, yes, volatility. The volatility is back to a little over 4%, which means 64% in terms of the VIX that you and I talk about, Scott. That's pretty high. But our sentiment indicators, because we do that over at Market Rebellion, we track sentiment. And the sentiment indicators are that outside of China, most people are viewing this as an opportunity, not as, oh, run around and just uh, sell everything. So we tested back down to 40. We bounced I'd say overall, that's good, Scott. All right, we're going to see how it plays out. Uh, it's an interesting story. Doc, thank you. Hey, check out this mystery chart. It's up more than 30% this year, hitting an all-time high again today. And there's a new note saying it can surge double digits from here. I'll reveal the name. We will debate it in our call of the day. We'll do it next. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit ODFL.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. 
If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back. Costco is rallying on the back of its earnings beat. The company also getting a price target raised by a number of firms, which makes Jason Snipe a happy man because he owns the stock. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So Costco, man, um, up 23 percent year to date. Obviously, we're very happy with the brand EPS beat, revenue beat. Um, they're expanding globally. You know, there was a little bit of concern on just kind of, you know, the, the pressures, the input input pricing pressure that they have, what they haven't spread to the consumer, but um, they're continuing to grow. And I think it's really a top line growth story. So very happy with the numbers must own, you know, in this big box retail space. Yeah. Twenty three and a half percent year to date. That's a nice one. Uh, Thermo Fisher. That's our mystery chart. Jenny added to the conviction buy list at Goldman Sachs. Price target goes to 690 bucks. That's 13% or so from here. You still love it? Still love it. This is interesting because we actually talked about this last Friday when they had just come out with guidance and the stock was up about 7%, maybe 6.5% last week. So it's kind of cool to see what's happened. So last week they came out with guidance. Thermo had been guiding for down 10% revenues in 2022. Last week when they guided, they were like, oh, actually, they're going to be up 10%. And what had happened was analysts were caught unaware. And so over the past week, I think they've kind of been scrambling to update what were stale forecasts. So now you've got Goldman upgrading them. We think this is a reasonable price target. Um, Obviously, it's not going to have the huge, or rather, I don't think it's going to have the huge move over the next 12 months that it had over the past 12 months, but it still has a lot of upside, and this is important. They benefit from, they certainly benefit from higher COVID testing. They have really broad and diversified business lines. I think it's a great stock to own, particularly as we reflect back on the conversation of kind of moving out of what the really hot stocks have been over the past year or three years into something that's just going to deliver. And this management team always delivers. They always deliver conservative guidance. You've got 8% organic growth. Yeah, it's at 28 times earnings, but we think that they'll grow into that. So very happy to own it and plan to continue to for the long term. In other words, you like it. Yeah. (laughs) All right, up next, Doc has unusual activity. Doc, you get ready. I'm coming to you after the break. Dr. J. Unusual. What do you see? All right, Scott. Well, uh, Cheesecake Factory, C-A-K-E, the stock was about $49 when we saw a large order step in and start accumulating the October double nickel. That's 55 calls. They were buying those calls, again, about $6 out of the money, Scott. Um, I jumped in there, bought those calls. The stock is making a nice 3 or 4% move today, and it's more than tripled the low that it hit, of course, during that pandemic panic. 
Marathon is the other one, Scott, M-R-O. This one, the stock is about $12.50. They were buying the 15 calls. So both of these are upside call buying. Uh, these calls are the 15 strike calls in November. So I already had a position in MRO, but I added to it with more calls, and I'll probably hold those for about these next two months, Scott. All right. Appreciate that, Doc. Thank you. All right. We'll take a break. We'll come back. Steve Weiss has another new buy, a new position. We'll talk about it next. Okay, we're back. Steve Weiss, J-Bull, JBL. New position? Why? Yep. New position. Here's why. Number one, it's cheap. It's going to earn. It's about 10 times uh, forward 12 earnings. But they're in every hot segment of the market that you want to be in in technology. They're in autos. They're basically a contract manufacturing company, but also design, also give you advice on logistics, supply chain, et cetera, as it to that. So very, very cheap stock that got into new markets. About 20% of business last year was from Apple. But guess what? That's expanding across all their businesses. So to me, there's very low risk here, given the multiple that's at. It's not going to be at 20 times, but the company's also going to guide you to, to an earnings number of $10 per share. So this stock could perhaps double from here. So I like quite a bit. Earnings are Wednesday. Look, I'm not betting on this quarter. I think the quarter will be fine. Company guides very well. But this is not a one-quarter thing. This is a longer-term hold. I also understand, and frankly, I'm surprised to learn that you bought Chevron within the last, I don't know, week or so. Um, just only because the way yeah. you've sp spoken about, um, you know, big oil companies in the past, ESG, your involvement in, in various areas there. Can you give me some clarity on this position? Sure. So I think to me, more oil like me. is a particularly... What? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I wouldn't bet on that, Jenny. To me, oil is <laughs> uninvestable. But it's not untradeable. So this is more of a trade. Oil kept going. I've got an obligation to make money. I'll make money very short term. My views have not changed at all. Chevron is trying to do some of the right things with carbon capture, etc. I think it must be a mistake to put all oil companies out of business. That would destroy the economy. So you got to be there. As long as they're doing the right things, making strides, okay. But this is a trade. And uh, look, I think keep going because oil... Is moving higher. Eventually, you come back down to earth. It always does because a miner, like an oil explorer, you give them a dollar, they put it into the ground, and they build more capacity. Okay. Tradable, just not investable. All right. I got you. We'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll do final trades next. Final trade time. Jason Snipe, you go first. Yeah, I like Palo Alto here. I like the cybersecurity theme, 28% revenue growth in the last quarter. Stay long. All right. Thank you. It's good to see you. Uh, Jenny. Umpqua, four and a quarter yield. Creeping up interest rates is only positive for their business. It's a regional bank, Jason. <laughs> All right. Speaking of his uh, recent like buy it. of the KRE, thank yep. you very much for making that connection. Dr. J. Uh, it's unchanged right now, Scott. IFF, International Flavors and Fragrances. I like the call action. I bought them during the show. All right, Steve Weiss. Moderna had a huge run. It's dipping today. But here's the thing. When the pandemic ends, as Safan sa says, the prices on their shots go from $25 to $150 to $200, which is normal for boosters. Think of the profitability there, plus their entire pipeline of 34 
All right, Moderna. good stuff. Man, if, I, if I told all, all of you after Monday that we'd be positive on the week, you'd probably say you're going to be crazy. Uh, but that's where we currently sit. Yep. We are positive for the week on the S&P 500. That does it for us. I know the exchange is going to pick up the ball, tell you where they think stocks are going. They'll do it now. Have a great weekend, everybody. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.